You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're with Breakfasters, Steve White, Alicia Sometimes and Declan Fay. And this is a podcast of our best, most favourite, most awesomest bits starting Monday the 23rd running through till Friday the 27th of this week. We spoke to Henry Waggins about Elvis's honeymoon Palm Springs home. Laura Nix came in to talk about the Yes Men Are Revolting. Bigsy reviewed Jonathan Alter's The Centre Holds, Obama and His Enemies. And John Darnell came and talked about Wolf in White Van. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. It's the time where we talk books with Tony Biggs and he's looking at The Centre Holds, Obama and His Enemies by Jonathan Alter. Jonathan, of course, covered nine presidential elections and he's a really highly respected journalist and you, sir, are a highly respected broadcaster. Welcome to the studio. (laughs) I thought you were going to say highly respected polemicist. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Welcome to the show again, Tony. Good morning, breakfasters. Good morning, morning, listeners. Uh, uh, now, first up, uh, the very first political book I ever read was written by a man whose death we're actually commemorating this weekend. It's been 10 years since Hunter S. Thompson died. Mm. And the Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail book he wrote about the mm. 72 Nixon McGovern election was the first one I read. Uh, because it was Thompson, not because it was politics. Uh, but that got me into it. Consequently, I've read quite a few political books on elections, particularly American ones, Australian ones, less so British ones, simply because their setup is so dull, really. It's sort of like a state election here. It's so small. And uh, we got the same system, naturally, the Westminster system, but we are increasingly using American methods. Yeah. So I'm interested in that regard. This one, the centre holds Obama and his enemies. is called that because Jonathan Alter considers Obama to be a centrist for whatever rabid sort of theories the Republican right put forward. Uh, Alter considers Obama to be trying to govern from the centre. Uh, so the book's uh, interesting because it sets the election up as far as what people are voting on as far as Obama's programs to that point had been, his first term. And it also sets up the complete shambles that is the right of American politics nowadays because it's obviously split between the idiot Tea Partiers and the Republican establishment who've got no credibility left after the GFC. So as with the right in this country, uh, for for a long time, since Nixon, the right in America has always uh, taken the idea that we can get people to vote against their own interests if we push the cultural war at them. 
Mm. Not don't let them think whatever you do that uh, white trash America is in the same boat as black America as far as the class thing goes. And then you've got Mitt Romney talking about the forty-seven percent, the Democrats forty-seven yeah. percent, and he's really quite—he's just uh, of working class and social classes. He looks his nose down on them, doesn't he? Well, but Americans are reluctant to even admit the class question uh, but it started to come to the fore during the 2012 presidential election partially because of the Occupy Wall Street movement and things like that which which pushed that idea that it's the 1% versus the 99 you could make the argument I think that the foundation documents of our western democracy were written by the 1% the Magna Carta was written by who? Toffees. The, the aristocracy, aristocracy, the nobles, wrote the Magna Carta, forced the king to sign that, the American Declaration of Independence. Bunch of merchants, slave owners, the 1% wrote that. Our constitution, who wrote that? Some bunch of whiskery old merchants. You know, it's the 1% that's actually written this so-called democracy. So for anyone who wonders, oh, it doesn't seem to be working, well, compared to what? Democracy's never really well defined. So anyway, this book uh, is great on a number of levels. Policy-wise, I think he lets up armour off a bit easily, particularly with the regard to the fact that uh, his entire financial section of his government is still basically that revolving door between Wall Street and government. It's the same guys that caused the GFC are still running the Treasury uh, and uh, and uh, US finance. Are you of the view that a lot of people are that he, Obama just got a little bit lucky in the cycle uh, in terms of the economy picking up in America? Well... He does suggest that, yes, those numbers did go in his favour because up until about a couple of months before the vote, the unemployment uh, figures were still eight-point-something. And it would have seemed, you would have thought, impossible for a president to win a second term with those numbers. And, yes, they started to drop a couple of months before the vote. But he also points out that in fact the Republicans had no ideas and he compares the Republican primaries to a clown car (laughs) you know you had these lunatics like Herman Cain and Donald Trump and just this bunch of complete ratbags to the point where Romney seemed to be an obvious choice and Romney was hopeless because as you said, you know, his comments about, oh, 47% of the country's going to vote for him because they're, they're uh, as Joe Hockey would say, leaners, not lifters, yeah. <laughs> you know. So uh, the other interesting thing about the book, though, uh, uh, I'd really like to point out to people, if you spot it, is his uh, descriptions of how Fox News works. Uh, and he, Tell us. <laughs> well, he points out that, uh, apart from the fact that it's run by this jab at the heart of a swine called Roger Ailes, who's an old Republican Party operative that Murdoch's installed there. Ailes is this paranoid weirdo. <laughs> uh, but uh, he also points out that, in fact, it's in Fox's commercial interest for Obama to win because they rate better when they've got him to scream at and put all their ridiculous conspiracy theories forward. They actually rate better. Uh, 
Yeah, they get caught, don't they, in this kind of duality, you know? They're they're, yeah, very absolutely. much so. Uh, the same thing is sort of happening here. I think, to yes, I think so, Steve. I think you can see it in the Australian sort of conflicted coverage of the Abbott government <laughs> at the moment, you know. Uh, uh, and so that was that was really interesting, uh, going all the way up to the election where you had the disastrous Carl Rove ranting as the counts came in. And <laughs> he Rove called refused, it. He called it. Rove refusing to believe it. So that... That part of it's really interesting too, the the media aspect of it. The organisational aspect of it, the, particularly the Obama campaign, is astonishing. Like nearly a million volunteers that they'd organised because he hired all these tech geeks from Silicon Valley to set up these massive computerised uh, systems that allowed them to micro-target Voters in America, of course, it's not compulsory voting. They have to actually one get them out there first, get them registered, and get them to vote, and then get them to vote their way. But uh, you know, Obama uh, raised over a billion dollars, boys and girls. One over a billion dollars. Romney came like about seven hundred million. Wow. Think about that. Nearly two billion dollars just to run an election. You, you, know, you can't suggest that that's a healthy democracy. That could be spent on aid or Oh, any teaching, number of things. Anything. Bigsy, can I ask you, you'd like to take everything with a, a, a slight splash of cynicism. Um, when, you, uh, when you look at a book <laughs> like this that looks at that election, especially someone like Obama that came in on such a wave of hope, does a book like this that follows him through that election, does it make you, did you come out of it liking Obama more or less? No, I still like the man personally. I think if I met him, I'd really like him. He's, his difficulty is he's got a love-hate relationship with politics. Uh, he loves it for the idea that he can possibly change things. He hates the actual campaigning aspect of it uh, in that he can't explain stuff. He wants to explain stuff in detail, and he can't. He just can't. They want him to have slogans. You know, and he hates it. Uh, so, uh, and he's just not a good schmoozer with mm. the, with the big donors and things like that. He's and with Congress, in fact, which has been one of his failures. He's just he's just not good at schmoozing. Would it have been more effective for him if he had uh, a vice president who was good at all those things? Well, presumably uh, that's why he picked Biden because it didn't Biden really come had, off, did it? Well, Biden's been it. it but didn't come off because of a couple of reasons, but one was because the Republicans, like Abbott against Labor, made the decision they were going to block every single thing. Even if it was their policy, they were going to block it. Labor's doing a similar thing now here. But th- that was their decision. They were going to block, good or bad, they were going to block it because it was him, because it's Obama. He, he reckons there is an obvious underlying racism to the uh, uh, a lot of the Republican Party stuff, they just won't say it. But there's absolutely no other reason for them to just say we're, we're going to block every single thing this guy does, even if it's against our own interests. And there's a fascinating thing with Obama that for someone who was the first black president, he's had to hold his tongue on so many racial issues uh, throughout his term, even though even as the racism has become more blatant against him. Do you think once he gets out of being the president, we'll hear more from him on that? Uh, I doubt it. Uh, I think he's still uh, totally aspirational. And I... 
I think he recognises the obvious racism that's still there in the United States, but I don't think he'll ever take that on board as to why he struggled so much uh, politically. I, I just don't think he he sees the world like that. He's he sees it all in policy terms. Should he wear a progressive T-shirt? Progressive or not progressive? Which would you say? Oh, I think he's progressive. Uh, social issues he is. You know, the fact that he eventually came out, even though Joe Bl- Biden blurted it out first <laughs> uh, on yeah. gay marriage yeah. and things like that. So I think in that sense, uh, it's partially, I think, because he's got young daughters. I think most people uh, with young daughters are going to be eventually progressive just because their daughters will demand it of them. Didn't work for Tony Abbott, unfortunately. No, but, you know, before the last election, there were many times when he he pointed out that his daughters think he's an old dag that hasn't got a clue. They just uh, shut up during the election so he could parade them Presumably, though, he knighted knighted a member of the royal family so he could get in good with Prince Harry for one of his daughters. But that that fell apart this week as Prince Harry supposedly hooked up with uh, Hermione from um, Harry Potter. <laughs> well, we never want you to shut up, Tony Biggs, that's for sure. You can't make me. <laughs> We're gonna, it, sorry. You know, it's the centre holds Obama and his enemies by Jonathan Alter. Thanks so much for coming in, Biggsy. Three triple R. the last 20 years, the Yes Men have been wowing people with their pranks and political activism and bringing attention to corporate crimes and other things. The Yes Men are revolting, uh, is coming out and director and producer Laura Nix is in the studio with us. Welcome to the studio, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. The Yes Men are revolting. I guess for uh, listeners who don't know who they are, maybe just explain a little bit about them. So the Yes Men are a duo of political pranksters that have been doing work against kind of corporate greed Um, for almost 20 years now they've been doing what they do and they basically impersonate other people and they intervene they kind of figure out a way to bust into some kind of conference or sometimes it might be a government event or something like that as a way of um, getting out a political message about what kind of um, things we're hearing from the press, how we need to start questioning what we're hearing from really any voice of power. Uh, one of my favourites in the movie is the, the getting a press conference together in the Chamber of Commerce, and I'm really impressed with how they get it together so quickly. So they're distracted over here, they put together a press conference, and people are writing down their names and taking it quite seriously. But they always seem to get caught out in the end in some way. Um, what, what do you think their charm is? Well, the trick is to, um, you know, to get invited to something, or if you can't get them, and they do that sometimes by setting up a fake, fake website and then just waiting. It's like they put bait out into the world, and then they just wait for people to kind of invite them somewhere, like what they did with Dow Chemical in the second movie. Um, or they just take matters into their own hands, and we just set up an event. So in that instance, they actually rented a room at the National Press Club and got people to come in. And, you know, they, they have a very good way of being able to speak in this very particular voice, acting like a corporate spokesperson. In this case, it's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is not a government agency, but the largest lobbying organization um, in the country, and um, a huge proponent of of um, basically, you know, fossil fuel interests. So what they went and did is said, you know, we're actually supporting a carbon tax, which is the opposite of what they do. But there's a, they, they do it in such a way that the press believes them, and it kind of shows how the press is just kind of repeating these press releases and 
um, you know, not fact checking, not necessarily looking at, at what's really going on. Laura, as the director of these guys, and a lot of the comedy they've been doing going right back to the first movie uh, is it's real fly by the seat of your pants sort of stuff. They don't exactly know how it's gonna how it's gonna start, how it's gonna play out, and how it's gonna end. Is this an extremely anxious sort of role for you as the director? Yeah, sometimes people ask me, how do you direct the actions? And it's kind of funny because you can't. I mean, you basically plan every single thing you can. And and then at that point, it's just improvisation because whatever can happen can happen. In that instance, with the Chamber of Commerce, the real Chamber of Commerce guy bust into the room, interrupted the press conference. We got it on tape. We ended up sending it out, and it was like major news. Mm-hmm. It was on every single um, news channel like all over the United States, and it even got a little bit of international press. Who knew that that was going to happen? You know, we had no idea. So you you set up as many things as you can, and you set up contingency plans as much as possible. I'm much more into contingency plans than they are. (laughs) They don't really care. And I get more paranoid than they are. They've been doing it for such a long time that they're just kind of anything goes, you know. But I'm always like, well, what if this happens? And we have to have this plan and that plan, which, in the end, that has helped us sometimes. How how does the mechanics of it work? If they get arrested for something, do you get arrested as well? Are you you know, they, don't, they don't really get arrested. I mean, that's the when everyone looks at them, they always think, you guys must get arrested all the time. You must get sued all the time. They've only been sued once in, in almost 20 years of doing this, and that's for that U.S. Mm-hmm. Chamber of Commerce suit. And um, you'll have to see the film to see what happens to that lawsuit. Um, and the only, like, in the film you see Andy getting arrested, but it actually was because of a bicycle ticket. He wasn't actually getting arrested for launching these survivor balls in the East River. It was because of a bike ticket. It's so, one of the great scenes from the film, I think, the survivor balls. Yes. That, that, these kind of eco-protectant things. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how, how that was set up um, without, of course, giving away too much for people who want to go and see the movie. Well, for, for people who have seen the, the other films, this is the third film that's being made about the Yes Men, so it's kind of a trilogy, as it were. And the survivor balls were introduced in the second film, and they're like a perfect personal climate change chamber haven. for yourself, <laughs> haven for yourself. It's kind of like your gated community for one. So, I mean, this is essentially what the Yes Men are doing. They use comedy and they use humor to be able to talk about very scary, serious political issues like climate change with, with the message of let's get as many people thinking about this as possible and, and in the end believing that we can actually do something about it. The powers that be want us to think that we can't do anything about it and that it's too late, but the message is we all can, we all must. You must get asked this all the time, but since uh, I think it was the Yes Men Fix the World, the, obviously the words changed. How do you? How do they prank and be so successful in pranks with the internet, Twitter, everything moving so fast? Uh, what's it like now? It's it's both the same and different with social media. It it's less different than you'd think, though. Um, some people think it must have completely transformed how they work. And I'd say the main thing is that we don't get mainstream press as often as we used to. So before, you could pretty much be assured that something would happen on CNN or you'd get it on MSNBC or Fox might cover it. It's much harder to get that kind of coverage now. Um, so when we release a video, there's a, there's a huge strategy about how to release it to whom. And you know, there's we, we tweet it at people so that people will tweet it back and we have kind of a a strategy a social media strategy set up in advance to get it to go as wide and viral as quickly as possible and that usually works Um, we've also done it 
and it hasn't worked like we sometimes have done it with celebrities who are going to retweet like we didn't even put it in the film but um, there's a, a scene in the film with a polar bear going down the canals of Amsterdam yes. it's really hard to describe you might just have to see the movie to understand that but they were going to have Moby tweet that and like, it just doesn't work to do things like that so the, we usually rely on activist networks and and have people like that help us get the word out. And they're both a lot older now. Like in the very first movie, there's a sort of like, how would you describe it? A sort of tear away quality to them. A sort of a slight sort of a, a youthful anarchism in a way. They're both a lot older. They've got, uh, one has kids, the other has a long-term partner. Has it altered uh, their comedy? And has it also altered the way they want to approach some of these issues? Well, I think that, you know, that's really one of the themes of the film is how do you keep doing this kind of activism for your life? It's one thing to do this when you're in your 20s, and when you start pushing into late 40s, it's kind of a different thing. I mean, you don't have as much time. They both have full-time jobs. They're professors. One of them has three kids. The other one is, like, desperate to try and keep his relationship together. I mean, I think that for Mike, he's very interested in dealing with climate change because he's you know his three daughters who are going to inherit this mess and um there's just an understanding i think between the both of them is that everything that they've been working on for all this time whether it's social justice or the power of supposedly the free market even though we all know it's kind of not a free market um it's what contributed to what we have now because climate change is really like a systemic issue. It's the failure of um, democracy to be able to produce the kind of change that we know that we need. And so, in a way, this this film is like a culmination of all the issues they've been talking about for a long time rolled up into one in the same way that climate change is. The Copenhagen Climate Change Talks was a highlight in the film you must see. We've been talking about the Yes Men Are Revolting and we have a double pass to give away tonight for cinema Nova. There's a Q&A with Laura, which will be fantastic. And the film screens from now, has it got a limited release? Um, we're going to be... Um, we've already started figuring out distribution plans for certain parts of Europe and North America. Um, we don't know yet what will happen with Australia, but we did release the other films in the past. Well, then you must give us a call, 93881027. Thanks, Laura Nix, for coming in and talking about the Yes Men. Thanks so much. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. For our very first senior squad of the year, we have the incomparable Henry Waggons, who's going to talk about Elvis's honeymoon Palm Springs home that was dubbed the House of Tomorrow. Welcome to the studio, Henry. Welcome to today. <laughs> Talking about the uh, house of the future. Yeah, I've. you're actually... Um, getting me a little jet lag because I'm fresh off the plane. I'm, you know, as I've just done my duty as a humble reporter going all the way to Harm, Palm Springs for Triple R for this very segment. On a jet plane? <laughs> On a, jet, a private tough jet. Gig, tough could... gig, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> now, this, this honeymoon, Elvis, Palm Springs, it's evoking all of these images in my mind tell me that uh, it lived up to the expectation. Well, if you get to go there, all of them will be satisfied every single image it um it's probably the sleaziest review i'll ever bring <laughs> to the uh, table here but That's yeah saying something palm springs if if you sort of haven't been there is a, a mid-century masterpiece if you're into that kind of modernist sort of 70s architecture look the exposed beams the shag pile the sunken lounge you'll find this is the home of that very 
movement or one of the pioneering sort of places, uh, at least in America, where it all sort of t- took hold. And Elvis's honeymoon hideaway is open to the public. You can ring up and speak to a strange old man, give him your credit card, <laughs> and the door, the ornate gates of uh, this amazing building will be open to you uh and i'd highly recommend a visit i've actually it wasn't so long ago i feel like i reviewed graceland here on triple r uh I, i got the pleasure of going through memphis and going there but this was this is sort of a good companion piece uh elvis did lease this house uh in 1966 through to 1967 and it seems this damn place has been milking that fact ever since (laughs) um but he did have one of his key moments and in fact i got to lie on the very same bed they are very keen to point out that exactly nine months later after the date of elvis and priscilla's marriage lisa marie presley was born so this is supposedly where she was conceived exactly and i got to lie back and stretch out on those unwashed sheets. <laughs> Obviously, there can be DNA evidence. <laughs> Some of those things, you know, if, if, if Elvis kisses your forehead, you're not going to wash your face. You don't wash the sheets, right, for God's right. sake. But, uh, yeah, it was, you know, quite an exciting thing. Um, and I, uh, over and above the uh, the whole Elvis thing, um, which is difficult to escape in that house, uh, it's, it is actually an incredible UFO-shaped building uh, that was built by uh, Robert and Helene Alexander, who, yeah, definitely are mid-century pioneers of that kind of modernist movement. And as, as an exponent of, of that particular uh, field, it's an incredible uh, shrine. Uh, every single home that the Alexanders built in Palm Springs has twin, tiny, thin twin palm trees growing out of the back um, high. So you, as you scan the Palm Springs horizon, you can see the mark that the Alexanders have left on the uh, on the place. Uh, there are incredibly cheesy elements in the in the house, uh, there's lots of Elvis paraphernalia, including the old um, Johnny Rocket-style jukebox yep. that I'm sure that Elvis did not have. <laughs> there, Cadillac parked in the garage. His uh, a, an original pair of his sunglasses, um, and you know, someone's had a hardcore stint on eBay uh, and absolutely crammed the place full. Um, Water features. There's an incredible water feature out the front that sort of uh, winds its way through in a figure of eight uh, pattern. And I think I remember um, thinking that I would not want to stumble home absolutely drink-faced one night um, and trying to get into my own home. Um, but uh, the, the Alexander's... Oh, sorry. No, 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 you go. I was going to say the apricot facade is... Uh it's it's just a little soft isn't it as you walk up the steps yeah exactly it's 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 um the whole thing is quite soft there's so much shag pile and lush carpet you can't escape it the kitchen's extraordinary you know it, at home i've got a record player called the weltron 2007 and it's was built in this kind of 60s 70s era and it's a vision of what they thought the year 2007 would be like and it's got these smooth white lines and it's one of the it holds pride of place in my home but it's that kind of uh yeah modernist futurist thing that's going on so elvis's kitchen was a real reflection of that 
the kitchen has sort of got this huge round ornate island bench in the middle and it's got its own charcoal pit barbecue (laughs) inside in the middle of the bench and it's also got this strange on another one of the benches is a permanently uh, fixed mix master um, that cannot be put away and has a switch inbuilt. Um, so anytime you need to uh, whip up some cake mix, which I hear Elvis was into, all you need to do is flick a switch and don't have to worry about it. How do you clean in. it? Well, I don't know. Spit and polish. <laughs> Lick the bowl, of course. You know, uh, and and so there were these kind of. Re- it's it's this real strange moment in. T- time where obviously the designers were striving to live to to build the house of the future but there are all these inventions in there that were left well enough alone as the years uh, went on You were saying it's the owners or whoever owns it now has been living off the fact that this was Elvis's honeymoon house uh, for this year and a bit Yeah, he he leased it for $21,000 He was tipped off by Colonel Tom Parker who lived in the area, he was next door to uh, Frank Sinatra in the house behind the robotic rockabilly tour guide was uh, as if she told thousands and thousands of people were keen to point out that Marilyn Monroe lived in the house behind. In fact the tour guide was worth mentioning. She was kind of like a goth rockabilly chick who does three tours a day, very liberal with her Elvis impersonations like Colonel Tom Parker uh, was roaming around the uh, the streets and she, and found and, and called Elvis and said you've got to come and see this and he did come and see it and then Elvis said my God this house looks like a UFO <laughs> it's like the, it's like she sort of laps into these really bad Elvis impersonations I pro- her American accent was a lot better than mine I can promise you that that was authentic but uh, yeah it, it, it there was. That was kind of fun. But Tom Parker, when tipping off Elvis, did not realise that next door to the house lived the premier Palm Springs, Los Angeles gossip columnist who oh. ended up making Elvis's life horrific Oops. for his entire stay and was the very reason Elvis had to smuggle out the back um, entrance of the home, fly off to Las Vegas and get married in secret to Priscilla because he was constantly hounded in Palm Springs because of this uh, gossip gossip columnist. I'm interested to know, you say that three tours a day. Mm. I mean, is there, you see uh, footage of Graceland and there's just people filtering it, filtering Mm. through it all the time. How many people are heading through Elvis's honeymoon house? Not that many. (laughs) This was, if you look at the website, if you look up Elvis's honeymoon hideaway, you'll see it's um, from, you'll see the flashing fonts that only feature in uh, websites from 1992. (laughs) It's like, uh, it's, it's quite a homespun opera. And yeah, it, it's it's kind of we were the only ones on the 11 a.m. tour, uh, and what did uh, they sting you for that tour? Thirty bucks. Thirty bucks. So it wasn't too bad, uh, and uh, it was well worth the uh, the experience uh, for for that kind of intimate uh, intimate yeah the intimate uh, tour. And and I just wanted to mention now I've uh, been lucky enough ha- not to have to rely on uh, crowdfunding to date, but this particular house i think warrants an appeal to all those you know this to all those stylish triple r listeners out there i think we should do some sort of possible campaign because this house is for sale oh wow for the sum of 8.5 million dollars and i think we i might start this website 
might start possible campaign. Everyone at Triple R, if we all put in hundred bucks, we'll get a timeshare arrangement. I reckon five minutes each. We can uh, own this place between all of us. I tell you, it's worth it. Four bedrooms, bathrooms. It's been on sale for a year now. I reckon I could probably get it down from eight and a half million to eight. I think it's the biggest bargain <laughs> you'll ever ever see. Does the tour guide come with it, along with their Elvis impersonations? For eight million, you'd hope so. <laughs> Do you come with the tour? <laughs> We've been talking about Elvis's honeymoon, Palm Springs home. It's Genius Squad with Henry Wagons, and check out his new single, State Trooper which is, of course, the boss's uh, cover, cover from the boss. Uh, where can you catch that? Well, uh, if, you, uh, if you look up the uh, Henry Wagons uh, Twitter, um, I'm just at, at Henry Wagons, or the uh, Wagons Facebook page, you'll see a link to the clip. Or if you look up Wagons State Tro- Trooper on YouTube, you'll find it. Yeah, or the Wagons Bandcamp, uh, if, uh, if uh, all the uh, paths have been laid, you won't be able to escape it. Great experience. <laughs> Triple R. We're very excited to be joined in the studio now by John Darnell, whose new book, Wolf in White Van, is out and it has been a critical success and is a critical success. It's a story told, uh, well, I believe you wrote the first chapter, uh, the last chapter first. That's right, It's a story told backwards about Sean Phillips uh, and what he did when he was 17. As he says, I did something terrible once, and it's about games and consequences. Welcome to the studio. Hey, how's it going? Um, (laughs) Going good. Do your Australian impersonation for us again. There you go, mate. (laughs) Very good. You've got that down, Pat. Thank you very much. It's amazing. There'll always be room for you on the regional tour of the RSL (laughs) in Australia. I'm going to teach uh, incoming Americans things. Here's a few you need to learn. That's all you need. Now, in the book, of course, Sean Phillips does something that is terrible. I won't give it anything too much away that you don't want to give away. And I was interested also that you're um, you, you're into the Incredible Hulk yeah. and uh, Heavy Metal and, and Conan the Barbarian and Robert E. Howard right. had an untimely death. That's and right. Was that in any way an inspiration for this character? No, I hadn't thought of it. I mean, I think maybe a little because I did look it up while it was being Robert E. Howard shot himself in uh, his mother's drive. Way, uh, yeah. when he was 30. That was after his mother passed away, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I read some Robert E. Howard when I was younger, and yeah, uh, yeah I think he's kind of maligned because he got slotted into the fantasy genre, yeah. but those books were incredibly readable and, and very well written. They are. He's an interesting character. He's there's a, a So I started playing, this is going to go far afield from your question, but, uh, but I started playing tabletop games, right, these sorts of role-playing games that people do. Uh, when I was in edit on the book, I met some... I, it turned out that one of the friends from our parenting circle, right, is really super into it and knows a game designer named Jason Morningstar who does these really good games. Uh, and I, he said, you know, you might look at this book called Playing at the World, which is a big history of role-playing games. Robert E. Howard... Uh, was into dressing up like Conan and going into the foothills of Texas and sort of like LARPing, you know, live-action role-playing. <laughs> and, and they would take pictures of themselves, like with these swords and, and buckskins and stuff. It's really pretty... It's weird, you well, know. back then it was like... That was super nerd back then. Yeah. These days it's almost you know, like... Yeah, it's no, it's plenty of people do, but like but there was nobody. It's like they were inventing the idea. And, uh, and so, so, yeah, interesting dude. Uh, well, of course, the game uh, in the book is Trace Italian. I read somewhere that uh, you first called it Citadel, but then it took right. an interesting turn. Tell us about Trace Italian. So, uh, a Trace Italian, or a Trace Italian, I can't pronounce French to save my soul, um, 
uh, is, a, is a medieval fortification in the shape of a star. It's an earthwork that you build uh, from you do it from dirt. You could build it, I guess, of wood. But uh, but the idea is, if you have multiple angles, multiple walls around something, then invading forces will have to break down more stuff to get at you. And so it's these these. Uh, multiple layers of star shape around a city, visible from the air, super cool looking. But originally it was called uh, Citadel, and then I was actually flying to the U.K. once, or through the U.K., and I bought a a gaming magazine. It turns out that uh, the people who make Warhammer, one of the biggest uh, games of this sort, the company that owns it is called Citadel. (laughs) I was like, well, that's too obvious a reference. So I started looking up medieval fortifications and found out about this. It's also called a star fort, which is a, this is a cool name, too. <laughs> now, you've got a, from what I can tell, you've got a touch of the gamers in you. I've read that yeah. you're a bit of a pinball player as you were a kid and then sort of moved through various versions of gaming. Yeah. Uh, was this book the sort of natural end point of that? I don't know, because I didn't play these these sorts of games at all. I was like, I was a pinball and video game dude. I didn't I didn't do D and D except for one day uh, in junior high. Um, and we won't talk about that. <laughs> well, because I just didn't I didn't. There was no room for free play in D and D. It's like you throw dice and it tells you whether you succeeded or failed. I did not like that. I, I liked the I, I I was outraged that you can't attack something stronger than you and possibly win. Right? Mm-hmm. It was not possible. Right? Is you had to run and flee in the early stages of the game. I was like. What kind of game is this? You because know, in pinball you have a, a fighting chance and there is chance involved in stuff. So, but that's why I played mostly was pinball when I was a kid. What level of pinball were you at? Were you pinball wizard? Or it depends the... on the table. It yeah. depends on the game. Uh, I'm really good at Twilight Zone. Yeah, I'm pretty good at yeah. the Creature from the Black Lagoon machine. Mm-hmm. Um, from older games, um, I remember a game called Fireball that just used to destroy me when I was a guy. I really hated. I would get really angry because it has a spinning disc in the middle that can dump your ball right between your flippers, but but somebody has one in Durham now, and I'm better at it. Maybe that's one for the record company at the next release. You just go for a Mountain Goats pinball machine. Oh, your lips to God's ears. It's like that, that, I mean, there'd be nowhere further to reach. I'll tell you, on the Twilight Zone machine, this is long, but there's a function called Lost in the Zone that I didn't know about when I was playing it all the time in college. I'd have an hour between classes. I'd go play and if you complete all these tasks that are in this door in the middle of the thing, if you complete the last one, the machine starts to blink, and it plays the theme from the Twilight Zone, and for 30 seconds or a minute, it spits every ball in its guts out onto the table, and they're all in play at once. Wow. My record was getting lost in the zone twice in a single game. Wow. So, that's, that's so you've got that gaming side, but you also started out writing poetry. Yes. You're a singer-songwriter, and uh, you wrote Masters of Reality, The Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tell us about that uh, literature side, because you, I, I love in your lyrics that you're so conversational. Hang on a second, Alicia, take us back. You wrote yeah. Masters of Reality, The Black Sabbath. Master of Reality, yeah. the, uh, not the album. I wrote no, 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 no. You wrote the entire yeah, it's album. Yeah, not what's yeah. known about me. That's right. <laughs> The Sweet lead Lord of this world. That's me. That's me. That's me. Wow. I was very the young novella. at the time. But, no, it's, it's a novella uh, told from the perspective of an uh, adolescent who's in a treatment center, uh, and they've taken his Walkman away. It's the mid-'80s, right? And uh, and he's petitioning his therapist hmm. to give him back his tapes. Right? And so so it's a vehicle for talking about uh, about master Yeah, reality. but it's fiction, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that's, that side of you, uh, who's the, the poet and the lyricist, because your, your lyrics are conversational. This book is very conversational and that's what I liked about the book the dialogue yeah. so tell us about your love of literature well I, I mean I like books as long as I've been alive you know it's like books and music sort of uh, I, I got into them both you know 
before I could walk, I assume, it's like my earliest memories are of playing records and reading books. I was, I was a precocious reader. I read early. Um, and, uh, and it's like this has always been... Reading's a thing you can do almost anywhere. Right? It's really it's super great. It's like you don't have to power down your books. How about uh, writing? Is that <laughs> yeah, no, I started writing very, very young. I think I was six when I uh, wrote my first short story. Oh, do you remember what that was? Sorry. Yes, it was called The Magic Bugle. The Magic Bugle. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to hear that. So you wanted to be a novelist before you wanted to be a songwriter. Yeah, well, I just wanted to be a writer. And a poet, actually, was what where I went. I was writing short stories a lot when I was in sixth and seventh and eighth grade. They were very good. Um, but then when I was 14, I discovered poetry, and I, I started writing poetry just constantly. Tell us about Sean Phillips. Um, Sean is the narrator of Wolf and White Van, and he is uh, a pretty private person, both by disposition when you get to know him younger, but also by necessity because he's uh, disfigured. Uh, he's a difficult guy to look at. Um, and uh, and he admins this game that you play through the mail um, that he started, that he invented when he was in the hospital. And... Uh, and yeah, he's a he's a, a hard person to know. Uh, I hope that he's complex. I hope that he's not a, a great guy or a terrible guy, right? But a person like you or me, right? And it's this game that he invents, Trace Italian, is kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure, which you do by mail. Yeah. So there's a, a touch of the old school about it, which uh, feels very cool. Yeah, it's 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 from a lost age, right? Mm. It's like there's a there's a, a human component to all the play. And of course, a dangerous element in the game. People do get hurt. I read somewhere also that Dream Deceivers, the right. documentary uh, where Rob Helford uh, was giving testimony to right. say Judas Priest, uh, their, their lyrics supposedly killed two teenagers yeah. that was what was proposed and obviously he said our lyrics uh, didn't do that and why would we try and kill our fans yeah he said it's a bad business it's an amazing documentary called dream deceivers which is is a jumping off point for the book because one of the kids survived right and he was quite disfigured his family was the family that sued uh, judas priest alleging that they'd put backwards messages in the music to make their fans kill themselves which if you think about it why would someone do that? Right? <laughs> Why would like, you get rid of your own fans? Well, I mean, the, the 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 what's alleged is that they would do it, you know, for the greater glory of Satan or something like that. But but that's a fantasy, right? That's not actually something that people do, right? It's like these people have sort of subscribed to this delusion. They've sold themselves because it's easier to imagine that than to imagine that a couple of adolescents would would just up and and. And destroy themselves. From memory, this happened in uh, the gaming world as well. I think Dungeons and Dragons. There are a, a couple yeah, there of were a couple early Somebody on. got too involved, and th- then there was this whole hoo-ha about you know people shouldn't use their imagination. Well, those so were the stories, right? That's the thing. But it's always when you when you look harder at these stories, it's not the game, right? It's, there's more to it than that. Um, but uh, but with Lance and Carrie, the the young people in here, they just get excited. It's not even that they're you know doing something they think is dangerous. They're from Florida, and they don't understand what the winters in the Midwest are like. So what attracted you to that dark side of game playing and, uh, and I guess, uh, decisions that we make in our youth? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's what it is, that, you know, that you, one thing you learn uh, as you grow older, I hear that it's true. Obviously, I will never grow a day older, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but I'm told that one thing you learn as you grow older is that you, you make small decisions that have consequences, right, that, that ripple on out for a long, long time. And sometimes you don't get clarity on them for many, many years, and sometimes you get no clarity at all. You say, I'm not sure why I made this decision uh, that has had consequences, good or bad, right? And, uh, and, and that's an interesting thing about life is that really that, you know, not much happens in a vacuum, that things have effects, 
And obviously events shape us. What's one of the things that you think has shaped you, whether it's becoming a father or a musician? Obviously there's many things, but what's one of the most pivotal things that have shaped who you uh, are? I, <laughs> there's so many. Every there's The thing is like the small things count as much as the big yeah. things. You don't really know. Like the first thing I thought was Nick Cave balancing himself on my head when I was 16. You know? <laughs> That's enough. Stop it. That's it. Every, got the quote. Every child should have that as a rite of passage yes. at some stage through yeah. puberty. That Just one lead them into this room and go, I agree, and I feel it's going to stand on your head. Nick should be off. compelled. To, it's like you you had a good run as a singer-songwriter, but guy balancing himself on a 16-year-old's head. Now he was performing and he lost his balance. Uh, and it was the first Bad Seeds tour of the U.S., and I was standing there in religious ecstasy, and, uh, and he... he you know, he's a very physical performer, and he fell over and righted himself on my head, and I was like, I have received the benedictions. <laughs> <laughs> have you since ever run into Nick Cave uh, through No, we don't know each other. He's actually oh. one of the, it's, it's funny, so, you know, when I meet people, I try not to, you know, they're just people. It's like my philosophy on art is like a person who makes art is not a special person. He's a person who does a job, right? It's like, and their job may reach you. You know, in a really, really amazing place, but that doesn't mean they're someone who you should fawn or breathe uh, it, it, weird around. It's like they're just people who do a thing and are good at it. So it's cool to meet them. The same as it is, you know, when a guy, uh, if you meet the guy who built your house, your house keeps you warm. It literally keeps you alive. You know, but you're not going to go, oh my god, you're the guy who built my house. My house is where I live. <laughs> it's like, you know, you go, oh well, thanks for making a cool house. I appreciate that, and that's how I feel with with art. But Nick Cave is one of the guys who I'd be like, okay, you're going to meet Nick Cave. Be cool. Be cool. Be cool. That's the guy. <laughs> it, don't scream at him. He fell on my head when I was 16. Well, it's, it's because when you listen to music, is so intimate, right? It's like you do it by yourself, and you you tell your secrets to the music that you listen to when you don't talk to anybody else. You, the music knows how you feel and it knows where you're weak. <laughs> I so. think in the Roland S. Howard uh, documentary, Bobby Gillespie saying that he just loved the show so much and he was walking down the hall and Roland was coming the other way and he just sort of said to him, man, I love you, I want to F you. <laughs> Classic. And it's just so inappropriate. But we love you in not in that strange way. Not in that strange way. The book is Wolf in White Van, John Daniel. It is a cracker of a book, so please get your hands on a copy. You're off to writers' festivals now. Going to Adelaide. Excellent. So if you're yep. in Adelaide <laughs> You'll be listening on streaming. That's right. John Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.